Our text this morning is in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 14, and I'll be beginning at verse 1, reading through verse 14. 1 Samuel chapter 14, beginning at verse 1, this is the Word of God. One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was a son of Ichabod's brother Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Sina. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other toward the south, Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor-bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, Come on then, we will cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, Wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. So look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan, his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in the area of about half an acre. So ends the reading of God's word. And as a prelude to the sermon, I want to draw your attention to a video it lasts about five minutes, but I hope that it sets the stage for us regarding the challenge that 1 Samuel 14 issues. When I was at the University of Florida for every home game, we would get in the bus at our hotel and we would drive right by the stadium, and we would stop at what's called the Gator Walk. In every game I played there, there was probably 20 to 40,000 fans at this Gator Walk ready to greet us as we get off the bus. I would see all these people. I got to tell you, there were a lot of voices that started to hit me. One of the first voices that instantly hit me was, was pride and arrogance, because I would look out and I would see 
thousands of jerseys with my number on it. I would look out and I would see Bible verses that they were wearing because I wore them. And so for a second you thought, dang, I'm something. They're here for me. This is pretty cool. I must be somebody. There's a picture that I stumbled across. And it's one of Time's 100 most influential images of all time. And it's the picture of this young girl. She's on her way from her village to a feeding center not far away. And she's so malnourished and she's moving so slow that this vulture is waiting to attack. So the young man that took this picture, I think there was probably something in his heart that he, he wanted to do good, he just, he wasn't sure, so, so he, he captured this picture and he just waited and, and then the vulture got closer, so he kind of shooed the vulture off and then he walked away and the vulture would come right back. And he was told because of some of the sicknesses in the areas, don't touch anybody, don't do anything, and so he didn't. He didn't. He did nothing. Because apparently the cost was too much. So he left. He went back. The New York Times published this photo in 1993. In 94, he won the Pulitzer Prize for this photo. Four months after this, he chose to end his life. You see, every single one of us, we have a chance to be successful in life. And you know what? I hope you are. I really do. I, I hope you're successful. There's nothing wrong with being successful. But success is just about you. But significance is about other people. You see, that man that took that picture, he had success. That's one of the greatest honors a photographer could ever have. But obviously it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. So what's going to be enough for you? You see, success is great. You can do a lot of things with it, but it's not going to be fulfilling. And you can never forget that sense of urgency that it's not about your timeline, it's about their timeline. While you might have 30, 40, 50 years, they have days, minutes, moments. She had moments, but it wasn't worth it to go pick her up. It wasn't worth it to give her a hug. It wasn't worth it to tell her about the gospel. Yeah, I won a Pulitzer Prize, but what does it matter? What does it matter? It doesn't. And I think the greatest tragedy in life is we're going to look back one day and say, I was successful in things that don't matter. I want you to be successful, but more than anything, I want you to be significant. And when you live for Jesus, 
and you love people, I believe you're going to have a life of significance. Um, as profoundly as, as, it, as it hit me. And as we arrive to 1 Samuel 14, King Saul is sitting on the sidelines afraid. He is concerned only for his success. He is concerned only for his personal kingdom. And the risk of stepping out in faith to fight the Philistines is far too great for him. Much in the same vein as the reporter who chose not to pick up that fallen child from the photograph we just saw. The historical situation is this. The Philistines have gained a stranglehold on Israel. All the while, King Saul is brooding under a pomegranate tree on the edge of Gibeah with the priest Ahijah. The spiritual situation is this. God had already rejected Saul's dynasty in chapter 13, and God has already rejected Ahijah's priestly line from that of Eli back in chapter 2. It's also interesting that Ahijah is wearing an ephod, that is the priestly garment by which God's will could be discerned. Saul, however, is making no attempt to use that ephod to ask God for direction. He seems paralyzed, unable or unwilling to do what should be done. The setting is this. While the rejected leaders do nothing, Jonathan is unable to stand by and not do anything any longer. So he forges a plan in secret. He leaves the camp with his armor bearer to go over to the Philistines' camp. It will not be an easy trek, for the two camps are separated by a deep ravine. From a human perspective, two men climbing up a cliff to fight with a large number of soldiers waiting for them whenever they arrive appears to be the height of folly. But Jonathan is assessing the situation from the perspective of faith. And a properly grounded faith does not look at the circumstances, but at God. And Jonathan believes that he can climb that cliff and that God can use just him and just his servant to defeat the Philistines. Robert A. Baker wrote a biography entitled J.B. Tidwell plus God. The central theme of that book was how so many remarkable things can be accomplished whenever God's resources are joined with the commitment of one faithful follower. If Baker had sought out an Old Testament model for such a thesis, I think he would have chosen Jonathan. And I think this text from 1 Samuel 14 would have been a good one. Jonathan reflects the commitment of a faithful follower in two important ways. First, he reasoned that the only way he could be successful is if God were involved in his mission. 
How refreshing it is to hear Jonathan use the word perhaps. Perhaps God will be with us. In doing so, he professes the power of Yahweh, but also the freedom of Yahweh. He does not presume anything from God. And in this way, his words reveal a deep and lively faith. Jonathan knows that God is sovereign, indicating that it may be or it may not be that God will use him. But he also believes that God is omnipotent, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving Israel with many or but with a few. Jim Simbala became the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York City in 1971. At the time, the church met in a broken down building in what was considered one of America's meanest neighborhoods. Now, however, the church numbers in the thousands, which is a testament of what God can do when men and women begin to pour out their hearts before God in faith. And yet, Simbala contends that too many Christians think lukewarm is normal, a notion that he combats, saying, let us never accept the excuse that God cannot work in our situation that our particular people are too rich or they are too poor, that they are too inner city or that they are too suburban, that they are too traditional or that they are too contemporary. That kind of thinking is never found in the word of God. And second, Jonathan never intended for the victory to be for himself. He intended the victory to be entirely for God. Kenneth Chafin recalls the first time he introduced Billy Graham to a group of ministers. Out of a genuine appreciation for Dr. Graham, Chafin went into great detail about all the things that the evangelist had done through his ministry. And Chafin says, when Graham rose to speak, he seemed agitated by such an introduction. As a result, Billy Graham, before he brought the message that night, pointed out that it would be wrong for him to take any credit for the things that God had done. Maybe that is why one of the songs always sung at a Billy Graham crusade was, To God Be the Glory. This leads us to the perspective that a faithful follower takes. Consider for a moment Jonathan's boldness. Consider his faith. Don't you think he would have made a great king? Don't you think he would have served Israel well? Nevertheless, as Saul's son, Jonathan would never get that opportunity. You see, Jonathan was rejected as king at the same moment Saul's dynasty was rejected. Although Jonathan is superior to his father in character, Jonathan's destiny is linked with Saul's. The two of them will eventually die together on the battlefield in 1 Samuel chapter 31. In human terms, it is a tragedy that Saul's sin prevents Jonathan from coming to Israel's throne. But you see, Jonathan doesn't think in human terms. He only thinks in God's kingdom terms. 
Jonathan accepts the, the, the Lord's judgment. He later befriends David. He later says David is Israel's rightful king. For Jonathan, the kingdom was never his to rule. It was only his to serve. Stephen Vincent Benet writes a short story called The Devil and Daniel Webster. And it illustrates, I think, the point we should observe really well. At the end of the story, the devil tells Daniel Webster that the office of president will seem in his grasp, but that Daniel will be passed over. And then the conversation ensues. If I am, I'll still be Daniel Webster. Say on. You have two strong sons, said the stranger, shaking his head. You look to found a line, but each will die in war, and neither will reach greatness. Live or die, they are still my sons, said Daniel Webster. Say on. You have made great speeches, said the stranger. You will make more. Ah, said Daniel Webster. But the last great speech you make will turn many of your own against you, said the stranger. They will call you Ichabod. They will call you by other names. Even in New England, some will say you have turned your coat and sold your country, and their voices will be loud against you until you die. So it is an honest speech. It does not matter what men say, said Daniel Webster. Then he looked at the stranger and their glances locked. One question, he said, I have fought for the union all my life. Will I see that fight won against those who would tear it apart? Not while you live, said the stranger grimly, but it will be won. And after you are dead, there are thousands who will fight for your cause because of the war words that you spoke. Why then, you long-barreled, slab-sided, lotton-jawed, fortune-telling, note-shaver, said Daniel Webster with a great roar of laughter. Be off with you to your own place before I put my mark on you. For by the 13 original colonies, I'd go to the pit itself to save the Union. See, ultimately, Daniel Webster didn't concern himself with success. He was only concerned about the Union's Calls. The same is true for Jonathan. He was not concerned about what became of himself. He was concerned only about the furtherance of God's glory. It reminds me of the song by Casting Crowns. It's one of my favorites. It's called Only Jesus. And I, I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me. Only Jesus. And I've only got one life to live. I'll let every second point to him. Only Jesus. All the kingdoms built, all the trophies won, will crumble into dust when it's said and done. Because all that really mattered, did I live the truth to the ones I love? Was my life the proof there's only one whose name will last forever? Only Jesus. If we are not careful, our success can lead to developing a mindset like the temptation that Tim Tebow experienced. I must be somebody important. Look at what I've accomplished. It's all about me. But that's not leading a life of significance. That's only living a life of self-importance. 
Consider what Tim Tebow emphasized. Won't it be sad to look back one day and say, I was successful in things that didn't matter? Won't that be sad? Or as actor Denzel Washington once said in a commencement address, don't just aspire to make a living, aspire to make a difference. And I think that directs our heart to the primary message that this text in 1 Samuel chapter 14 puts forth. The initiative of a faithful follower. Jonathan's example proves that faith-filled human initiative can serve as an entrance point to the Lord's saving action. Think about it. When Jonathan reached the bottom of the cliff with his armor bearer, the Philistines spotted them just as they had anticipated. And the soldiers at the top thought that Jonathan and his armor bearer were like other Israelite deserters who had already surrendered to them. Come on up here, they yelled. We will teach you a lesson. And it was that response Jonathan had prayed to receive in order to show that God was with them. Doesn't this text say to you and me in explicit terms that God doesn't need a multitude to accomplish his purposes? Jonathan says at the end of 1 Samuel 14, verse 6, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by a few. If you are a Christ follower, you realize, you realize, I think, instantly two things here. For one, the Heavenly Father used the work of His only begotten Son on the cross to save His people from the stronghold that sin held over them. Only one. Second, Christ prepared but a small band of disciples, yet it was the early courageous witness of these disciples that paved the way for the truth of Christ's work, the salvation found only in his name. We see it foreshadowed with Jonathan. We see it played out on the other side of Calvary. We see that the Lord can use a small fellowship like ours. We see that the Lord can use just you, just me, when we are willing to take a faith-filled initiative. Celtic Christians refer to the Holy Spirit as the wild goose. They did so because a wild goose cannot be tracked. It cannot be tamed. There is always an element of mystery that surrounds a wild goose. There's always an element of mystery that surrounds the Holy Spirit. If you yield to his leading, you do not know who you will meet today. You do not know what you will do today that will make a difference. But if you yield to his leading, I believe you will. 
Unfortunately, in the words of Pastor Mark Batterson, perhaps the thing that is most lacking in the Christian church right now is good old-fashioned guts. To live by faith, to climb the cliff, to engage the enemy. Batterson says this, Jonathan's story inspires me. It tells me that the will of God is not an insurance plan, it is a daring plan. One daring decision, one daring decision was enough to shift the momentum and create a tipping point. That is why 1 Samuel 14, 23 says, So the Lord saved Israel that day, because one person made one move. One person did one thing that made a difference. Friends, what one move will we make? Will we do more than just try to shoo away a vulture? Will we do something daring for the cause of Christ and for the kingdom of God? And then, will we maintain the attitude of Jonathan, which I think is encapsulated so very well in Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, Lord. Not to us, but to your name be the glory. Not to me. Not to you. Only Jesus. That's how we lead a life of significance when it's not about me, but when it's about Him. I pray that we will be more like Jonathan. I pray that we're ready to climb a cliff and fight a battle for the glory of our God. Our song of response today is, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. The altar is open. The hymn is 486. I invite you to stand as we sing.
I just want to um, challenge each of us today that in this coming week, that we would look in some tangible way to make a difference for the glory of Christ. Go now, I pray, in the peace of our Lord. May he empower you to climb a cliff, to fight a battle in his name. Amen.